So we're gonna get started. Welcome everyone. We have about 155 people here with us tonight, which is truly, truly exciting. Um, welcome to the Global Math Department. My name is Lee Natero and I will be your host tonight. Tonight we're going to be hearing from Julie Dixon about six unproductive practices in mathematics teaching. Uh, would everyone please introduce themselves in the chat window telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. So hopefully we can make some new friends in the world of Twitter tonight, or even just some old or new friends uh, in the chat tonight. Do you know we have people from various parts of the world tonight and that is truly exciting. So while people are introducing themselves in the chat window, uh, before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available about 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you would use the same link you used to get here tonight. The Global Math Department community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenter to be addressed at the end of the presentation. Our speaker tonight is Julie K. Dixon. Uh, let's see. Uh, Julie is a professor of mathematics education at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Dixon is focused on improving teachers' mathematics knowledge for teaching so that they support their students to communicate and justify mathematical ideas. She's a prolific writer who has published numerous books, textbooks, and articles. Dr. Dixon delivers keynotes and other presentations throughout North America. She is co-author of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt's Into Math and Go Math for K-8 Mathematics and AGA and Integrated Mathematics for High School. She's a leader in DNA Mathematics and is co-author of Solution Trees, Making Sense for Mathematics for Teaching book and video series. Especially important to Dr. Dixon is the need to teach each and every student. She often shares her personal story of supporting her own children with special needs to learn mathematics in an inclusive setting. Julie published A Stroke of Luck, A Girl's Second Chance at Life with her daughter, Jessica Dixon. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. I'm uh, busy reading everybody else's backgrounds. It's really impressive. And we have kindergarten teachers through college teachers. So that's exciting as well. My goal is to provide something relevant for each and every one of you. It will likely be difficult to keep up with the, the questions that you pose in the chat, but I'll do my best to, uh, to capture them now or later. Also, we talked about connecting on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at the stroke of luck. It's here on this first slide. But right now, I'm here to talk to you about six what I think are unproductive practices in mathematics teaching, and maybe even more importantly, what to do about them. And so let's get started first with my goals. My goals specifically are these. I wanna make sense of these six potentially unproductive practices. I wanna talk about why they exist, but I also wanna share some strategies that I think are productive to counteract what I actually think is madness. And so what are these six unproductive practices? In general, they're these. They are that we need to be careful about how we address lesson object objectives, how we use gradual release of responsibility, what we do with respect to scaffolding, how and when we introduce academic vocabulary, what we do to support rigor, and how we support small group instruction. I'm gonna spend the rest of our time together then going through these uh, one by one, making sense of them and getting into more detail. And so here is a bit more detail with each of these six unproductive practices, but let's just take them one at a time. So thinking about this first one, this idea of posting lesson objectives uh, at the start of the lesson. If I asked you to indicate if this is a requirement in your school or district, it's likely that we have a streaming of yes, but you might call this your lesson objective, learning target, essential question, 
Basically, do you have a requirement to post your goals for instruction before the lesson begins? And we're finding that most people do. And so here's the issue with that. If we have this requirement to post a lesson objective for each and every lesson, regardless of the goal of the lesson, we're treating every lesson as though it were created equally, and they're not. Using an example of division, lessons focusing on making sense of division aren't the same as lessons that are focusing on long division. Uh, to take this up a few grades, lessons focusing on making sense of factoring isn't the same as a lesson focused on going through the procedure of polynomial division. And so they shouldn't be treated the same. If we have requirements that are forcing us to treat it the same, then we're undermining our efforts to engage our students in, in the greatest experience possible. And I see someone say, well, it's required, but I don't usually comply. So that's something that, that we do. We have these workarounds. We say, well, if I know I'm being observed, I show it. But why do we need to have these workarounds? And I see someone just said that, that they post it right before the observation. Wouldn't it be better if our requirements had to do with best instruction? And so when these requirements are overarching and placed upon all of us for every lesson every day, they become unproductive. And so uh, what do we mean by that? I'm going to use some examples throughout this, this time together to, to unpack, make sense, make explicit these unproductive practices. So let's imagine a classroom a second grade classroom, and it's a first lesson where students are beginning to make sense of adding with regrouping, right? So they haven't had a lesson targeted on this before, and they're given this task. So there's this online candy shop. You can tell I made up this example within the last two weeks. Actually, I made it up yesterday, but don't tell. This online candy shop mails 347 candies on Monday. Maybe that's because I want candy mailed to my house right now. And 298 candies on Tuesday. And the question is, how much candy did the candy shop mail on two days? Pretty straightforward problem, right? But we're not asking or we're not telling students how to solve it, but we are giving them tools. And so a student might just begin to think of that problem as adding these two uh, add-ins, right? Thinking about 347 and adding 298. And say they represent it using base 10 blocks. So we have this image of base 10 blocks. Um, and the students are now ready to combine it. And so when they combine this, they see, oh, I've got these 500s, these 1310s, and these 15 ones. Well, here's where things get interesting. Because we haven't told students that this is a lesson about regrouping, they're, we're, they're not looking to say, oh, you told me I need to regroup, so I, I guess I, I need to, to now make this grouping. And I saw someone said, well, yeah, but if you have your administrator know it's a lesson on regrouping, then the administrator knows what to look for. Super, put it in your lesson plan and have the administrator look at the lesson plan but don't post it and don't give it away, right? What we want is for students to now look at this problem and say, well, how am I gonna show this as a, as a number? How am I gonna make sense of this? It's not 5, 13, 15, it is 500s, 13, 10s and 15, ones, but how do I describe that as a number? And so what the teacher can do at this point is ask questions to lead students to regroup. Ask questions to prompt students, well, how would you display that as a number? And so the task that we choose, this task that required regrouping to, to create a sum, leads students to respond to the essential question or the lesson objective without telling them that you need to do this because that's what the objective is for the day. Right? Our questioning that we use with our students, and we call this our TQE process, helps us. So, so let me actually unpack this TQE process. So in the TQE process, we begin with tasks. So actually, we don't. We begin with the learning goal. What is the learning goal? Because learning goals are crucially important. I'm just saying we shouldn't post them before the lesson begins. That's right, because what we end up doing is giving away the punchline. And so if we think about our learning goal, then we're gonna 
choose a task to help students to meet that learning goal. The questions we ask are what ensures students to connect the task to the learning goal while eliciting mathematical understandings as well as unpacking common errors. So in this way, we still meet the learning goal, right? That's our goal. But if I had posted and I see some of you say, well, our students ignore it anyway, but that's, that's not a good enough answer. We need to not post things if they're unproductive for our teaching. But, but if I had posted this, the students will regroup ones and tens when adding multi-digit numbers, I may be taking the aha from the students. And I never wanna do that. I never want to take that aha away unless it's absolutely necessary, right? That's the crucial part. So we wanna ask ourselves these questions. First, what's the learning goal? We always need to be able to answer what is the learning goal? We need to know that before we start. If the learning goal is conceptual, right? We're gonna ask ourselves that, is it conceptual? If it is, then we wanna zoom out on our essential question so that we don't give it away at the end of the lesson. We still wanna know what it is, but then maybe we zoom out. So imagine if I posted, if I'm required to post something like this, how can I add multi-digit numbers and describe the sum in meaningful ways? I'm not taking that aha from the students. I'm still targeting what it is we want students to learn, but we're not taking it away. Now you might ask, well, why is this different from, from procedural lessons? In a procedural lesson, you're typically leading students through from the start. Here's a procedure that you haven't learned before. I'm gonna model it for you. In those instances, it's perfectly fine to post the learning objective, but in, in other instances, it's not. So if I were teaching students a standard algorithm, it's okay to post it. If I'm teaching them to make sense of regrouping, I would argue that it's not, it's actually unproductive. And so that's our first uh, unproductive or potentially unproductive practice, posting lesson objectives, and especially for conceptual lessons. It lends itself well to move right into this next one. The next potentially unproductive practice is using gradual release of responsibility to teach conceptual lessons. So some of us might not use that language in our schools and districts, so let me unpack it. Gradual release of responsibility is often described as, I do it first, we practice it together, and then you do it, as a lesson structure. And that's often an expectation for every lesson every day. And the question though, is that appropriate for mathematics? You know what the answer is. The answer is it's not. That, that structure of teaching means the teacher's doing all the sense-making and the students are just copying what the teacher has done. And then we wonder, why can't our students solve these questions that are new to them? Well, because if you haven't modeled it first, we haven't taught it them to do so, right? Think about how else we could have taught that task with the adding with regrouping. What would the lesson have looked like if I had modeled it first? If I had said, we line up our ones, we line up our tens and our hundreds, we add our, our ones, if we can regroup, we do, and this is how we do it. And then we do our tens and then our hundreds. Now, now let's try one together and then you do it. If I had modeled first and practiced with students before students went on their own, this would have been a different experience. And I would argue that it would be unproductive. So now I'm curious, do you have a requirement to use gradual release of responsibility in every lesson every day? All right, let's, let's see, give us a response. Do you have this as a, as a requirement? This idea that you are gonna model first, then you practice together and then students do it. So I see some people say, no, we have students discover, no, 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 that's wonderful. That means we might be going in the right direction because this has been a requirement now. I'm seeing some yeses, right? But it's been a requirement for quite some time and we're beginning to move away from this. And that's beautiful, that gives us hope because if we can move away from this as a requirement, we're putting the sense-making for the students. 
And those of you who see that it's still a requirement for you and so many other people don't have it as a requirement, that's some, some evidence that you can bring back to your administrators or have conversations in your professional learning communities to possibly make it as a change. So thanks for jumping in on that. If we want students to do the sense making, then we can use something that, that uh, my colleagues and I describe as layers of facilitation. Layers of facilitation say that we're going to facilitate the whole class to make sense of this task. And we're gonna do so through questioning with that TQE process possibly that I described earlier. Then we might have students work in small groups on tasks with teachers pushing in so that the teacher can question students and see where students are, but students are still doing this, the, the sense-making. We also though need to find space for students to practice individually, independently. And again, the teacher might pull a small group at this time, might continue to work with students. And this is where we facilitate individuals to provide evidence of their understanding. So if you're looking for a structure of education, a structure for your, your mathematics class, this is a structure that might help you. The third potential unproductive practice has to do with scaffolding. And so I'm going to, um, well, first, I want you to imagine what uh, differentiation looks like to you. How do you provide differentiation during instruction? And often people say that they scaffold. That's how we provide differentiation. And my argument is that if we're not careful, thinking of differentiation as scaffolding could end up being an issue of both access and equity. And so I wanna help us to, to make sense of what, what I mean by that. And I'm gonna do so with a task. And so I don't want you to type in the, the question or the response to this in the chat room because I want different people to have time to think about it. And so here is um, the question. The question is, I, well, a task, I guess, the prompt. I want you to write a story problem that would be modeled by the expression 26 divided by four so that the answer to the story problem is seven. I don't want you to use the words around, about, or estimate. Now, this isn't a number trick. This is a task to write a story problem. So I'm gonna pause and have you So you've had a moment to, to uh, think about the problem. Does anyone want to now contribute to the chat? Thanks for not doing it early. Um, so I don't want you to put in an answer. I want you to give a hint. So what's a hint without giving this away for people who are stuck? So I'm pe seeing people put in some answers, but what's a hint? So, so someone provided a hint of one more, showing me how you would find the solution. Okay, a limit problem, maybe not what we're looking for at this point. Okay, number of something. Right, and so in this problem, if students were trying to divide this, as if they just divided, they'd get six and a half. And so then they get stuck. When I do this problem with students, and actually I have this problem that I've worked on with students in fourth grade. I'll show you where the video is, this classroom video at some point um, in a few slides from here. But students will often say, I have 26, pencils and I want to put the pencils in four boxes, how many pencils will go in each box? And then they get stuck, right? Because they say, well, there'd be six pencils in each box. They don't know how to get to seven. And so what they're using at this point is a sharing situation, right? They're sharing the 26 among four groups as opposed to a grouping situation. And so if they were to find groups of four, so I saw someone talk about 26 students going on a field trip and four students can fit in each car. How many cars would we need? Now this is grouping or measurement division and we're able to get the answer of seven. 
But if I had started this problem by saying, be careful, the answer to 26 divided by four is six and a half. How can you write a, a story problem so you need to go to the next whole number? How could you write a story problem so that you need another group? Then I'm giving the scaffolding just in case students need it as opposed to just in time. We need to, to hold back on our scaffolding so that students have the opportunity to struggle, right? That's a privilege to have the opportunity to engage in a productive struggle. And if we remove that opportunity by providing scaffolding just in case students need it, we're not teaching students how to persevere. We're not giving them a supportive environment with, within which they can struggle. And that's an issue of access to a productive struggle, which ends up being an issue of equity. We have to be really, really cautious about that. If we set up our students who have exhibited a struggle in the past by giving them too much front loading, too many hints, we're not being equitable in our, in our instruction, even though that we think we're trying to be so supportive and nurturing in the long run, it's not. I use the same problem with students in grade four. And uh, I have a video of this. The students did struggle. They absolutely struggled. And I didn't put the scaffolding in the foreground, I brought it in in the background just in time when the struggle was no longer productive. And so this is as a QR code in this book, Making Sense of Mathematics for Teaching Grades Three Through Five. I'm not gonna show it here now, but if, if you uh, take a look at this, this uh, resource, you'll be able to find it. And I saw Michelle post, this is an interpret the remainder problem. It sure is. And so what would have happened if I post my lesson objective class today, we're going to interpret the remainder. I'm giving away the aha. So this would have been another place where we wouldn't want to post that lesson objective because we would have taken the aha from the student. And so what we want to do is think about that learning goal and then choose tasks, not only to meet the learning goal, but to help students to engage in a bit of a struggle. We want to use tasks to identify common errors. We want to use tasks to elicit students' understanding and their common errors. The scaffolding is what we provide based on the evidence that we get from students. And we provide that scaffolding just in time as opposed to just in case. And so you might at this point have some takeaways, some questions that I may miss in this chat room. Please feel free to post them on Twitter as well, and I'll come around and look at those after. My Twitter handle is at the stroke of luck. The next potentially unproductive practice has to do with academic vocabulary. And this one, especially, well, actually for K-12 is often a push on people's practice. So let's think about that. Do you begin instruction by going over academic vocabulary? In elementary school, do you begin instruction with the word wall? In middle school, high school, do you begin instruction by giving notes? If we do, we're putting procedures before concepts, but so many of us will acknowledge right away that concepts should be taught before procedures. So let's use a task to make sense of that. We're gonna use a task that I actually used in an earlier webinar today, and we're gonna just address it a little bit differently. So to bring people who weren't in that webinar to the same place, we're gonna go over this problem. So in this problem, Brandon is sharing four cookies equally between himself and his four friends. Uh, but he starts by giving each friend a half of a cookie. So he and his, his, other, his four friends, there's five of them, each get half of a cookie. And so now we have this issue that we're needing to share the rest of that. And so he shares the rest of that like this. He gives each person those pieces. And it's interesting. Uh, this, I think, is a fifth grade problem. And I've also done it, though, in fourth grade. When I do this problem in fourth grade, we get to this last piece. And almost every single time, students say with this last piece, can we give it to the dog? Right? And I'm like, mm, no, you can't. You got to share it. 
and they get to then they say, well, can we give it to you, Dr. Dixon? I'm always after the dog with fourth grade. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But fifth grade, they get right to it. They share that last piece. And so person A gets one of them. And so if we determine what person A is going to get, they'll get a half from that first cookie. They'll get a fourth from that third cookie. And that last piece, they'll get that 20th. Now, some people get a little confused in naming that last piece originally. They might call it a fifth, right? And if they call it a fifth, it's because they're taking a fifth of that last fourth. So it's, it's not a fifth of a cookie, it's a fifth of the fourth, which is named a 20th. And so we have this amount of cookie, but your task now is to describe what that is all together, go through the process of adding those fractions, but don't use the words numerator, denominator, top number, or bottom number. So I want you to think about that. I want you to add these fractions without using the words numerator, denominator, top number, or bottom number. So I see someone talking about the vocabulary check because they think that they know or the word has different meanings. Absolutely. But what if we allow students to begin with their own language and then we name things later, right? So they're generating the language. So someone's saying I need common units. So are we talking about unit fractions or the cookies, a unit as well? Interesting. Someone else is saying that we are splitting the parts into pieces that are the same size. So Cindy, when you talk about parts and holes, what are you saying about the parts and holes? Carol, why 20th? So these are questions that we can ask. So Pamela, you've got this question about what do we do when students uh, don't have this growth mindset, they don't have confidence uh, or, or agency. I think that the practices that I'm talking about now support that by allowing students to do the sense making, allowing them to use their own language. This helps uh, them feel that they have something to contribute. So the smallest piece, Terry, hmm, I could have done hundreds. So that's interesting. So maybe it's the smallest piece that's present here. So what I'm seeing are many different ways to describe how to add these fractions. We're not using top number or bottom number. I see a lot of people connecting to the context, which is beautiful, right? Connecting to the context to make sense of adding fractions. So we have this half, this fourth, and this 20th. I see some people say, well, I need to be able to describe them all with the same size pieces. The 20ths allow us to do that. We can see with that last cookie that there's five 20ths in that one fourth. So the quarter is a one fourth, that, that, that middle add end. So, okay, I can describe that one fourth as five 20ths. Two fourths make a half. So I can use two of those fourths, which each had five twentieths, to make our 10 twentieths. Another person might say, well, if I have this whole cookie and I cut it into 20 pieces, half of that would have been 10. So now we allow students to, to get to the answer in different ways. Someone said, give them a real cookie, but I don't want to see students try to make twentieths of this real cookie. I would say they'd take a whole and they'd eat it and we'd be done. So now we have this 10 20ths plus this 5 20ths plus this 1 20th. When we combine them, 10 20ths plus 5 20ths plus 1 20th, we end up with 16 20ths. We don't have students adding the denominator because we haven't separated the numerator and the denominator by using that language. We haven't separated the numerator and denominator by saying top number, bottom number. Now, there's all sorts of comments on how ridiculous it is to cut these cookies into these pieces. Absolutely. This is something we can imagine. It's not something that we actually might do. And students can make sense of it. What's important, though, is this. When we delay our academic vocabulary, we give more access. Think of our um, English learners. English learners learn everyday language or even any second language learner is going to learn everyday language before they learn academic 
language. And so we want to just acknowledge that. We want to use people's everyday language to make sense of the mathematics. And we can think of mathematics as a language of sorts as well. And so we still value academic vocabulary. It's just where we introduce it. We introduce it after we introduce concepts. We might introduce it as we connect concepts to procedures. This um, problem is shared in a video that's also with a QR code um, here in the Making Sense of Mathematics for Teaching, the small group. And so I hope that you'll take a look at that one if you choose. And if you do end up taking a look at that video and you have comments or questions or comments and questions to share from this talk, again, please feel free to share them at the stroke of luck. Moving on to the fifth, uh, potentially unproductive practice is uh, neglecting opportunities to connect concepts and procedures. But I feel like we've gone through a lot of these practices now. We've gone through four of them. I'd like to hear questions before I move forward. And I may have missed some of these questions. So go ahead and jump in. And I see Tracy, you noticed the book that I just shared here. This is with my Friends and co-authors, Lisa Brooks and Melissa Carley, excited to share that one, absolutely. So comments or questions before we engage in this um, next potentially unproductive practice? Um, Julie, I didn't see any questions specifically. Um, it seems like most people like uh, were just feeding off of each other's questions and ideas in the chat. Uh, but if you have a question right now for Julie, please feel free to ask it. And I see some conversations um, in the chat about uh, mistakes as incomplete understandings. I am trying to move away from misconceptions. I saw in a previous slide that I used the term misconceptions, and I'm trying to pull that out of my, my vocabulary as well. It takes a while to, to do that. It takes a while to change your language, but language is important. Language communicates. And so what I'm trying to think of is early conceptions. There's some really nice articles uh, that talk about that language and I can't think of their references now, but I've been trying to build upon them. And so early understandings, early conceptions. And then if I wanna focus on an error, I'm trying to call that a common error. There may be better ways to think about it. So Erica says, so why are you moving away from the language of misconceptions? My new understanding of this is as this, a conception is students thinking. And so if we call students thinking wrong, it's not wrong, it's how they're thinking at that point. I like that unfinished learning. It's where they are at that point. And so when we call it wrong, it's not, it's not a positive thing. And so uh, rough draft thinking, beautiful, uh, nice ideas. And so then back to the question, the other questions to move on past that idea. Um, so should I not start with new unit with vocabulary bingo? I would encourage you to not start with vocabulary bingo. I would encourage you to start with a task that sparks students learning and let them use their own language to describe it. Later, you can name that language. And, and, that, and that's if you wanna use your bingo, that would be a place to do it. So, so that's nice. And I saw that Beth Kobit did a nice webinar on NCTM and they have the 100 days of professional development. And so you could take that look regarding the misconception language. So thanks for sharing that. And um, what other questions do we have here? So how do we move uh, teachers' beliefs that procedures are more important than conceptual understanding? I think what we need to acknowledge is that they're all important. I mean, that really is what rigor is all about concepts and procedures are truly important and, and we need them both, but concepts need to come first. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that with this next unproductive practice. So how long should informal language linger before moving to formal vocabulary? I think if we think of a, a lesson as, as like this learning arc, in the first lesson, in the first part of that learning arc, when we're first introducing concepts, we introduce the student's own language, and then we start to transition from their own language to more formal language as the, the unit of instruction moves on. And so by the time we're connecting concepts and procedures and then using procedures, 
we're using the academic language so that they still have practice. So then um, moving on to the next unproductive practice has to do with connecting concepts and procedures. And so let's talk about that. Many educators are now acknowledging that we begin with concepts before procedures. Now, at some level, we acknowledge it and then we still don't do it, but at least we're beginning to talk about it. We're getting there. But what I worry about is this, a lot of people who are spending all of this time in the beginning of units of instruction on topics, focusing on concepts, and then they get to procedures and the students still struggle with procedures, it's concerning that we don't get the return on investment that we feel like we deserve. We can go back to that original example that we used with the adding the multi-digit numbers with regrouping. If a teacher uses base 10 blocks and then uses drawings and has students talk about it and then eventually gets to the algorithm where students are adding with regrouping and then the students still make them errors with the, the algorithm, what's happening? And what I believe is happening is that we're not connecting our concepts to our procedures. We're not focusing on making those connections explicit. So we can use the, the cookie problem as an example. So remember Brandon's cookie problem, we, we talked about earlier, just to change it up a little bit, we can think about instead of giving the fourth and then the 20th, what if a student had shared the rest of the cookies like this? Maybe some of you did, where you started with a half and then you took that last half and broke that up and or that the half, the other side of E and split that up into five pieces. And then the last cookie you, you split up into five pieces altogether. And so we still want to know what person A gets. How would we name that? So that's the first part of, of making sense of the concept and linking to the procedure of adding fractions with unlike denominators. And so in this instance, we'd have different denominators. We'd have uh, tenths and fifths in addition to the half, but we still need to figure out how to combine them. So we have this cookie problem that students have made sense of. How would we use this to link it to procedures? Well, as we begin to explore what's happening when we describe these fractions in the same size pieces, we can focus on equivalent fractions, renaming fractions. And once we focus on this renaming fractions, we can use this experience to have students make sense of the procedure of just finding common denominators and adding the numerators without needing the drawings. So this is an example of this connection before we just practice, right? We wanna begin with lessons that focus on conceptual understanding before we move into those lessons that, that focus on procedures, but we wanna make the connection explicit. Here's another example. So I've got this problem where I have four sticks of butter and, and I wanna make these mini pan-sized chocolate chip cookies. I guess I'm into cookies. Uh, I know I'm into cookies. <laughs> And so each mini pan-sized chocolate chip cookie takes one fifth of a stick of butter. And so how many cookies can I make if I've got these four sticks of butter? And so if this were conceptual, I'd leave students to try to figure it out. I'd leave students to make sense of this problem. And they might make sense of it with drawing. So they might draw five or four sticks of butter and say, oh, okay, so I have these four sticks of butter. I can cut each stick into five pieces. And then I just need to count how many one-fifth size pieces I can make. And that's how many mini pan-sized chocolate chip cookies I can make. And so I can make 20. And so this would be focused on the concept, this concept of seeing how many groups of one-fifth are in four holes. The procedure would have students realizing that we have four divided by one-fifth. And we can rethink that as four times uh, five over one, the re reciprocal of one-fifth which would end up giving us 20. So how do we make that connection, that move from this conceptual idea of drawing pictures to this idea of using an algorithm, right? That's what we're focusing on. We begin with these concepts, but we need to connect students, make the link explicit to get to the procedures. And so a linking lesson would help students to make sense of that algorithm by showing them that when we had those four 
sticks of butter, we saw that we had five one-fifths in each of the four. That's like four groups of five. Four groups of five can be described as four times five, which gives us 20. And so this would be an example of a linking lesson. But all too often, we'll start with having students draw pictures, we'll teach an algorithm, we won't make that link specific. And so that's that could be an unproductive practice. The issue is it takes a lot of planning. It takes planning to figure out where do we need these linking lessons and what should they look like? So here's how I try to keep this real. What I encourage is for us to try as a team to look at a, a, a unit to come, a lesson to come, and think about what's that learning arc look like? And then within that learning arc, what are the two to three most important lessons of that unit? We can think of a unit as about three weeks of instruction. And then plan those two to three most important lessons together using the TQE process. It's likely that those lessons will be conceptual lessons or linking lessons. And as we use that TQE process, we're focusing on the learning goal, choosing the right tasks so we can identify student errors, looking for questions to help to see what students understand and also to under, uncover common errors. Some of those understandings are common errors and figure out where the scaffolding needs to occur just in time through the evidence that we collect. And so this TQE process can help us to plan for our linking lessons. It can also help us to plan in um, small group instruction. Earlier today, I gave a webinar on small group instruction, and it was based on the book that I wrote with Lisa Brooks and, and Melissa Carley on making sense of mathematics for teaching small group. And in this, we talked about what should small group look like? We talked about how often when we talk about pulling a small group for five students to a, a, a table, and this is often described as an elementary structure, but I'm seeing more and more that we are using this in middle school. So I wouldn't be surprised if we end up seeing pulled small group instruction in high school as well. But the issue and why my colleagues and I wrote this book is we are seeing teachers who had best practices uh, displayed in whole class instruction. As soon as they pulled a small group, we didn't see the best practices. We saw low level tasks. We saw the teacher asking low level questions and the students giving low level responses. We didn't see student to student interaction. We saw teacher to student, student to teacher, teacher to student, student to teacher, as opposed to teacher facilitating instruction. And so I encourage you to think about if you use pulled small group instruction in your teaching, do, is it a, a productive practice or potentially an unproductive practice? And that means looking at what does your small group instruction look like? How are your students grouped? Are they likability or are they moderately heterogeneously grouped? Do they have moderate differences? We encourage moderate differences. Do you only use small group instruction for differentiation or do you also use it for diagnosis so we can look at where students are in their thinking and what can we do better because we can always do better. And so I, I encourage you to examine small group instruction. And um, here's some structures that are helpful. How are they grouped? We just talked about that. Those same types of lessons, conceptual linking and procedural should be present in small group. We want the teacher to be a facilitator, students to be engaged. And we also wanna make sure we have productive norms in place. So the norms that I encourage for whole class and small group instruction are that students explain and justify their answers. They make sense of each other's answers and they say when they don't understand or don't agree. These norms are game changers and I would encourage you to incorporate them. And so now I'm, I'm coming up on a, a change. So I talked about the six unproductive practices, but I'm beginning to think there's seven. And so let's talk about this last one. This one is I'm just beginning to share it um, as an unproductive practice. I saw some people talking about where I blog about this work and I have blogged about this work at dnamath.com, but I haven't blogged yet about this seventh unproductive practice. And so this seven unproductive practice has to do with what are we doing to support students who are significantly far behind, right? What are we doing? 
<laughs> yeah, Jackie, there's seven. Um, and this one's personal to me. I know that when I was introduced, uh, we shared this story. Um, these are my daughters and me in the center. Uh, my daughter um, on the right in this picture, Alex Dixon, had a stroke when she was 12 years old. And um, she had to start her academic journey over again. A Stroke of Luck is a book that my younger daughter and I wrote about uh, Alex. And I had just finished a free offering of that book as a download from Amazon. Um, and I can only do that every 90 days, but probably in August, I'll be able to do that again. Um, but this book describes my daughter's journey. And I learned so much by needing to reteach Alex everything when she, um, as a 12 year old. And it taught me a tremendous amount supporting a, a child with special needs. And so here are some of the lessons that it taught me. It taught me that, uh, and I'm using some, some initials here. Some people talk about RTI uh, and, and response to intervention with instruction. MTSS in a multi-tiered system of support. What are we doing? And basically this is designed for our students who are significantly far behind. And this is what I found that many of us were doing. We were um, focusing and still are focusing on basic facts because we feel that if students just knew their basic facts, they would do so much better. But I'm, I'm really here to tell you that basic facts aren't the most important use of our instructional time. If students are significantly far behind and they have extended time, they can get to their basic facts just more slowly. I mean, it's nice for them to know it, but it's not the most important thing. What we find is that teachers who have best intentions and work so hard think that if they just work hard enough, they can reteach everything. They can catch students up who are significantly far behind in their year. But what happens in addition to teacher burnout is that students fall further and further behind because if students are significantly far behind, there's too much to do to catch up. We can't reteach everything and teach it well. But this third option, this third option is, uh, what does MTSS stand for? Multi-tiered system of support. Sorry, I, I jumped over that quickly. This third option uh, is to focus on prerequisites and teach them for understanding. And if I believe if we don't start doing that, we're not going to serve our students who are significantly far behind. And so here's what I mean by that. We want to look at our grade that we're teaching and we need to think about or course, what are the, what's the most important three topics of that course? And then we need to think what's prerequisite to that content. And that's where we need to linger. So for example, solving problems in context, crucial. That's prerequisite to so much of what we do as also in, within what we need to do. And so focus on solving problems in context. With Alex, when we were reteaching my daughter, Alex, we focused on that. We also focused on fact strategies as opposed to quick recall of basic facts. Because when we focus on fact strategies, we're supporting and reiterating the, um, the properties of operations that are so important. We focus on place value because place value is everywhere. And then for, for many of elementary grades and even into middle grades, if students don't make sense of multi-digit addition and subtraction, they're not gonna make sense of multi-digit multiplication. They're not gonna make sense of, of multi-digit division, nor will they make sense of those operations with decimals. And so you look at what are your important topics, and then you back up and you say, what do we need to do to get to those topics? And I think this is particularly timely now. So many of us, I mean, all of us really, have moved to online instruction. And we know that we have students um, during this pandemic, we know that we have students who have quite varying access to education um, and access to the technology. Teachers have different levels of, of preparedness to teach and different types of resources and connections. So I would argue that we're gonna have a year or more of, of many, many students who are significantly far behind. And I just see Pam, you're pointing that out as well. This is 
absolutely crucial for this coming year, but I think it's going to take longer than that to work on looking at the gaps. And so we need as grade or course teams to take hard looks at the content that we're required to teach in our grade and make sense of what's prerequisite to that prerequisite to that concept, those concepts, that content, we're going to need to make choices because if we don't make choices, the choices get made anyway, but they don't get made as logically as they could. And so we want to really be careful about that unproductive practice because as people get more and more stressed, we might use instructional strategies that are less and less warranted. For example, in making sense of problems in context, we might end up teaching keywords Keyword instruction isn't something we ever want to do. And so uh, we want something instead of that. Here's something that I've been focusing on recently, this three reads, to support students to make sense of word problems, right? Rather than teaching keywords, rather than teaching tricks, what if we taught students to make sense of situations, to make sense of the context described, or the quantities, I'm sorry, described in those situations, and then to think about the questions that could be asked. This is something you might want to look into. Um, I tried to look for the source of it, and the source that I that I find most clearly is this uh, Stanford Center for Assessment Learning and Equity. But three reads is a great strategy. So um, these seven unproductive practices, they're, I think, important to change our education story. Thank you, Tracy. Keywords are evil, right? People know where I'm presenting. If people tweet, hashtag keywords are evil. And so you don't know where I am now. Well, you do. I'm in Florida. But if you tweet about keywords are evil, people will know we're having this conversation. But the conversation is even much more big, more uh, much larger than that. So we have these seven potentially unproductive practices. They don't have to be unproductive. It's how we use them, how we address them that make them unproductive we can counteract the madness. And so I had these three goals for today. My goals were to make sense of the six or seven potentially unproductive practices, to talk about why they exist. And, and I think a large part of why they exist is because they come from ELA. They come from English language arts. They come from, from language arts instruction and they get used in mathematics as a blanket. The reason I think they get used in mathematics as a blanket is because a lot of our administrators' professional development come from people who come from English language arts as opposed to come from mathematics fields. And so they get used upon mathematics where, where they clearly don't belong. And so the strategies that I've shared today will hopefully counteract the madness. The chat strategies that many of you have shared in the chat, the chat's been fabulous, also can help us to counteract the madness. And so those were my main goals and you have my, my contact information. I think we have a few minutes for some questions. So uh, any questions? Um, let's see, I had, there was a couple questions that popped up in the chat and I, I gathered them here. Um, one was um, how much time, this is one of the more recent questions, how much time of teaching those students significantly behind should be devoted to those key concepts and prerequisites. And then also a follow-up to that one, is this a small group concept or should it be an entire math block? So basically, how do you, yeah. how are you gonna fill in those gaps for those students? Yeah, that's a great question and I don't have the answers. I'm just now be wrapping my head around this need to acknowledge that we're not serving our students who are significantly far behind in meaningful ways. And I'd love to be part of a group that continues to, to focus on that conversation. I don't have the answers to that, although probably a bit of all of the above. Um, one of the other questions was, can you talk about how an online lesson in math, what that would look like. I guess there's some people that are looking for <laughs> that. Yeah, that's a whole webinar, <laughs> at least. Um, I've been exploring online instruction as well, and I'm right now teaching a math content knowledge for teaching uh, elementary school math class to my undergraduates. And I've been exploring this level of whole class instruction, the breakout groups, how do I have students share their work in real time, the number of tasks. What I know for sure is that we need to send students into to breakout rooms to have them talk. 
We need to have some level of accountability for students when they're in the breakout rooms. We can still have students do the sense-making first with tasks before we model uh, the tasks prior. We don't need to use gradual release of responsibility in online instruction. We can still have students, and I'm talking about uh, synchronous online instruction so that we're meeting at the same time. We can still have students do the sense-making and um, then wrap that connecting it to procedures and have them practice procedures. So the accountability, this, the breakout rooms, going in and having conversations in breakout rooms and using uh, tasks that have nice cognitive demand. So that's a very, very short question uh, to a very, very long prompt. It's for right. short response to a long prompt. <laughs> um, I had somebody talk about, um, and I think this relates to like kind of gaps or, um, you know, your, your item number seven that you had in your uh, mm -hmm. six there. Um, what do you think of counting on fingers um, for adult students? You know, or even I guess you could say in high school, like if a student doesn't know certain uh, basic facts that we think they should know, you know, how, how do we um, work right. with students? Okay, so good question. Students can use counting on fingers, but when they count on fingers, they're maintaining this counting by one's world. We want to encourage students to think of more grouping ways of, of uh, combining numbers. And so we take what they have and we build on it to how can you now group so you don't have to count by ones. But ultimately, we also have to choose our battles, right? So um, if depending on where students are and, and what their barriers are, it's a hard question to answer uh, as a blanket. Um, I had one other question here, okay. um, and this was somebody that had posted uh, it quite a bit earlier. Um, that person said that that their school is interested in buying some of your the books. Um, and is there a way they can preview, uh, see preview what's inside? Before, uh, she said they'd be buying them from Australia. Huh. Uh, so I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I I so the the books that I shared today not a stroke of luck, but the Making Sense of Math for Teaching books are through Solution Tree. And I think Solution Tree has an Australia base. So maybe you could take a look at them there. The textbook that I write is um, Into Math, um, but I didn't use examples from that today. And I don't know if that's available in Australia. Um, so yeah, Solution Tree or Into Math is HMH. So I would begin looking there. I have a question for you all, though. My question is, based on what we shared, what's your greatest takeaway? And so maybe you have a minute or two to post your takeaway here in the chat. But if not, or maybe in addition, you can share at the stroke of luck. So what's your greatest takeaway? And I'll bring us back. You've got at the stroke of luck. I'll bring us back to our seven unproductive practices. Thank you, Nadia. Yeah, Michelle, Into Math. It's a new math program from HMH. Thank you. Yeah, we have to be careful about taking students' ahas away. The Zoom breakout room. I flipped your understanding. Well, that's nice, I think. Keywords are evil. The connection between concepts and procedures. I can't read that fast. Nice takeaways. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words. And thank for sharing suggestions and helping me to grow at the same time. Uh, I found this, I hope you, you did as well, but I found it really rewarding to see your feedback, your questions, your comments, and your information as we shared together. I've been honored to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julie, for sharing with us tonight. Um, hopefully, you'll stick around in case there's another question or two that people might have and and sure. work with that. And I thank you, everyone that showed up tonight for spending your evening or potentially morning, if you're in Australia, with us. Um, next week, uh, we will be. Um, oh, I just lost where our session was for next week here. Um, next week, we will be hearing the power of words from Diana McLean and Sam Kaplan. 
Um, and that is a session that's recommended for all teachers and administrators. So I hope that you all will join us next week for that particular talk. Don't forget that this uh, re webinar has been recorded and will be posted in about 24 hours. So you can share that with the colleagues that weren't able to join us tonight. Thank you.